Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The uh, text for this morning's message, uh, the message which is entitled The Second Commandment, is found in Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. And also we're going to read Acts 17, verse 29. Hear now the word of God. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above (coughs) or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. (coughs) You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6. Being then the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Acts 17, 29. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would fill our hearts with a reverent fear of your law. Help us, Father, to know why neither man nor beast could approach the mountain, could approach Sinai without being killed. Help us, Father, to know the difference between the law revealing to us your righteous standards, revealing to us how we ought to live and think and act. Help us, Father, to make that distinction between those good things and the law being a ministry of death. May, Father, we approach our understanding of these things with the the proposition, how are we who are saved by grace to live? And let us not de-emphasize the fact that we are saved by grace by the one and only law keeper, Jesus, who kept the law perfectly, who never sinned, Help us, Father, to rejoice in our salvation. And yet, let us not use that salvation as a cloak for vice or a license for sin, which your scriptures define as transgression of the law. May we seek to walk in your good law with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's not how you worship but who you worship was an expression that I heard, I believed, and promoted for much of my Christian life, even when I was in the ministry. There is something very practical and sincere to that expression or maxim. It's not how you worship, and, or, but it's who you worship. Similar to how it's not the gift that counts, right? 
It wasn't, friends, until much, much later in my study of the second commandment that I began to question whether or not that was a healthy attitude for worship. It's not how you worship, it's who you worship. I believe that. Now, I I no longer believe that the Bible teaches that. In the first commandment, God has instructed us to have no other gods before him. In the next three commandments, God instructs us on how we are to properly pursue our love and worship of the God whom we call Father. These first four commandments. When Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love God, that was a summary of these first four commandments. It's really uh, really what we're studying right now. We're in the midst of studying is how are we to love God? This morning, we discussed the second commandment, which speaks of images or likenesses of God. The great systematic theologian Charles Hodge, regarding the second commandment, said this, quote, Idolatry consists not only in the worship of false gods, but also in the worship of the true God by images. Many, in fact, believe this commandment it has that as its primary emphasis, that not so much are we not supposed to worship false gods by images. Many people believe, and I would agree with them, that the primary sense of the command is that we are not to seek to worship the true God by images. Harper's Bible Commentary says it this way. The prohibition against graven images may in the first instance have been aimed at images of Israel's own God. Yahweh. God will not be localized in an object such as a golden calf. Because to permit this to happen would make God an object of manipulation. Going into greater detail, J.I. Packer wrote this. In its Christian application, this means that we are not to, to make use of visual or pictorial representations of the triune God or any person of the Trinity for the purposes of Christian worship. The commandment thus deals not with the object of our worship, but the manner of our worship. What it tells us is that statues and pictures of the one whom we worship are not to be used as an aid to worshiping him. Friends, I remember transitioning from not even knowing that people held this view. I'm guessing some of you here are going, what in the world are, we t- are you talking about here? I remember going from that position where I didn't even know people held the view, and that is that we should have no images or likenesses of God whatsoever, to thinking that it was relatively insignificant. Okay, I see it, but I don't think it's that big of a deal. To now thinking that it's highly critical. I can't tell you, I can't overemphasize how important I believe this commandment is. In one of my seminary classes, we were instructed to read a book which promoted something that I now view as a violation of this commandment. Maybe some of you are familiar with uh, this book. Richard Foster wrote a book called Celebration of Discipline. Anybody, anybody heard of that book? It was a pretty popular book for a while. And in the book, he recommends using pictures of Jesus for deep meditation. Foster taught that images of God the Father or God the Son 
help us create a mental picture, making it all more real. He actually kind of in detail said, you sit in a chair and he told us how you should sit. And, you know, the posture you should have, get a picture of Jesus before you or some picture of God before you and start really mentally meditating upon that picture. Friends, I discovered upon reflection and deeper examination that this really might not be a good thing. We tend to be uh, selective when coming up with an image, likeness, or portrait. We pick the ones we like. Now, let's give me, let me just give you an initial example of how this could be harmful. Suppose my wife hires someone to paint a picture of me. Suppose she advised the artist on the artistic focus. I might be complimented. I might look at the picture and go, wow, my wife has a very complimentary view of what I really look like. Suppose every time she thought of me, it was the picture that came to her mind. Suppose she had the artist paint a picture that revealed or hid qualities about me to her liking. I wonder if I might start resenting the picture. She might say, but honey, the picture makes you love, makes me love you even more. Because in the picture, you have so much hair. (laughs) And you have that 32 inch waistline. Remember that? I had him throw in the 32 inch waistline. No. So the picture makes me love you even more. Because it's the you I really like. It's the you I really love. I might respond, yeah, but you love me more because it's leaving out traits or aspects of my looks or personality that you just don't like. The painting may, in fact, be a hindrance to our relationship rather than a help. I remember reading the first two commandments like this. This is the way I understood the first two commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. But if you choose to disregard this, at least don't worship the false gods with a man-made idol. That's the way I thought of it. Have no other gods. But in case you decide to disregard the first commandment, I've got another commandment. If you worship the false gods, don't use likenesses or images. I don't think that's what God is saying. I don't think God is saying, here's the first commandment. But if you choose to disregard it, here's another commandment. I think it should be read this way. You shall have no other gods before me and you shall not worship me utilizing man-made images of me. The sense of the commandment is thou shalt not make any likeness of anything for use in worship, public or private. Now, people might say they have a picture of Jesus, but they don't use it for worship. It's just decoration. Now, leaving aside how pictures of God for decoration might in fact be a violation of the third commandment. We might ask ourselves, how easy is it to shed man-made pictures of Jesus we see around us when it comes time to pray and worship? If you were to ask me, Pastor Paul, I want to see you run around. See if you can run around the building three times without thinking of a fox. I don't think I could get three steps without thinking of a fox. I think it's, I mean, maybe some people are just mentally huge enough to do that. But I don't think we can do it. So how possible is it to have a picture of Jesus in my living room and then begin to worship on Sunday morning without having that picture enter my head? And, you know, there's about six or seven pictures of Jesus in our culture that if we hung them up, 
you, without a name underneath it, you'd say, oh, that's Jesus. You'd know. Friends, Roman numeral two in your outline, false images. We must recognize that images are just not truthful. Though God is revealed everywhere we turn, we learn that in Romans 1, Psalm 19, and elsewhere, making an image of God puts limits on our perception of God. Images pervert God's glory and therefore dishonor God. This affects us in ways we maybe don't realize. John Calvin said it this way, A true image of God is not to be found in all the world, and hence his glory is defiled. Again, J.I. Packer points out that the golden calf built by the Israelites, Israelites in the wilderness was a bull image of God and his great strength. I hasten to point out that when they were building that golden calf in the wilderness, that they weren't seeking to make a false god. We learn later in the New Testament that they, in fact, made a false god. But they made this bull and they said, this is the god that led us out of Egypt. They weren't trying to create Baal or Dagon or Molech or any other false god. What they were trying to do is create aspects of the true God that they liked. The bull image of God depicts his great strength. That was the characteristic of God they wanted as they sought deliverance from the wilderness. A big, strong, dumb animal that does what you want him to do. The bull calf however, came quite short of portraying the true image of God. It left a lot of things out. For example, his moral character, his righteousness, goodness, and patience. The true glory of God was therefore hidden in that bull calf. J.I. Packer also points out that a crucifix, you know the difference between a cross and a crucifix, right? The crucifix has Jesus on, uh, you know, crucified on it. He points out that a crucifix portraying the crucified Christ on the cross also obscures the glory of Christ, for it hides his deity, his victory, and his present kingdom. It displays his human weakness, but conceals his divine strength. It depicts the reality of his pain, but keeps out of sight the reality of his joy and his power. You see, the image falls short. Images are unworthy, friends, because of what they fail to display. Looking at pictures should not be used to move us to worship because they can never show the glory of God. You know, artists make an effort at showing the glory of God in pictures by doing what? Anybody know? Yeah, they create, they make a halo over that. But you know what? It just doesn't work. It just falls short. The inadequacies of images pervert our thoughts about God. The bull calf of Aaron led the Israelites to think of a God as a being who could be acceptably worshipped through frenzied debauchery. The crucifix promotes an opposing emotion of walking into a church and brooding over the bodily suffering of Christ. An image of Christ on the throne promotes the pondering of his victory, which may cause us to be overly autocratic or domineering. An image of Christ doing a good deed so we could ponder his righteousness may cause us to forget salvation by grace. An image of Christ doing a miracle so we could ponder his deity may have us looking for signs continually. Friends, we could never make enough images of Jesus to accurately represent Jesus. But even if we could, even if we could, say we just said, look, we're going to go through the Bible and we're going to find every particular thing Jesus did. And we'll have an image for every one of them. 
stained glass it all the way across. Even if we could do that, made our best effort, we could never accurately portray the look on his face or whatever gestures he might have been doing at the time of the event. I mean, we wouldn't think of adding screenplay-like descriptions to the Bible. You know, you ever read a screenplay? You know what a screenplay is, right? It's a... It's it's kind of the script for a movie. And in the screenplay, there'll be little instructions on before the person says something, he turns and looks or he stoops or he gets angry or he scratches his head or what have you. Can you imagine how obviously wrong it would be to write a new study body, study Bible that gave um, the author, the author's thoughts on what Jesus might have been doing during the event? That he might have been stooping when he engaged the children? Or what look on his face he might have had as he healed the leper? What if the author decided that Jesus looked scared? Would we be scared? What if the author decided that Jesus looked angry or impatient? Would would this not promote impatience in us? After all, Jesus is our Lord. We are to imitate him. Friends, the inadequacies of images pervert our thoughts about God. Images also promote a disposition in the worshiper. We visualize the image. When we fall to our knees to pray, we will no doubt visualize the one we are praying to informed by the image used to represent him. And friends, to the extent that that image falls short or perverts the truth about God, we will fail to worship God in truth. The result is God's jealousy because at this point we begin worshiping a caricature of God And not God himself. When we name our kids, we accept or reject certain names, oftentimes based upon somebody that we knew. Right? There was something about that person we either liked or disliked that is strong enough to influence our decision. When God is associated with certain physical features, we may find ourselves coming up short in our respect of Christ. What if the picture or image of Jesus conveyed to you is startlingly, starter, startling, amazingly similar to someone who disgusts you or someone who's evil? What if we get a picture of Jesus up here and you realize that person looks like somebody who did something terrible to me? Not to mention the fact that, and I remember dealing with this in seminary, I don't have it on my notes, but just as a kind of point. You've got is Jesus who's Asian, Jesus who's black, Jesus who's Native American. I mean, what, what? I remember being in Hawaii and being accosted. I was witnessing on the street and being accosted by these locals, you know, and they'll, they'll beat you up if you're a Howley, you know. And they're like, well, what was Jesus, man? Was he a Howley? Nobody was holy. Please don't beat me up now. I'm like, well, no, he was Jewish, you know, and, you know, but then you get this big argument about, well, you know, what did the Jews look like in those days? Because a lot of people would argue that they were really dark or, you know, what ha- you see, you get in that whole thing, you know, that, I mean, the apostles said, we no longer think of Jesus according to the flesh. It's not just what he looked and I don't have it here, but the Bible clearly indicates that there was nothing about his physicality that was in any way endearing. It, there's nothing about the way Jesus looked helped. I find myself disappointed time after time when I see who Hollywood or even Christian films decide to cast as Jesus. I'm going to reveal to you in just a second how none of us are immune to what I'm talking about. 
by asking you this. Who would you cast as Jesus? What traits would you look for? See, you're, in the, you're, a, you're a casting agent. You're in the room and people are walking in because they want the part of Jesus. What kind of voice? Would you cast Arnold Schwarzenegger as Jesus? Why are you laughing? What about Woody Allen? And Woody Allen is Jesus. I think Woody Allen is Jewish. What about Christopher Walken? Ray Liotta. You know, kind of crazy people. Tom Selleck is Jesus. You might think to yourself, Pastor Paul, you're just being silly. They would never cast Arnold Schwarzenegger as Jesus. But friends, that shows your hand. We are quite confident, though we don't know for sure, that Jesus did not look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. That we, the fact that we wouldn't allow him to look that way in our minds indicates that we do have a picture in our minds of just who we allowed Jesus to or not to look like. None of us are immune to it. Now, what we have spoken of so far may help us understand the problem with mental images of God as well. We have these mental images of God. This moves really into the spirit of the commandment. You ever heard somebody say, I like to think of God as an architect. I like to think of God as an artist. I like to think of God as a father. Or they'll say, I don't like to think of God as a. You see, the I like to think of God as comment usually precedes some denial of what the Bible tells us about God. I don't like to think of God as a judge. I don't like to think of God as severe in his punishment of sin. I just don't like to think of God that way. It conflicts with the image of God we have created in our heads. Here, uh, and I, this isn't in my notes again, but uh, I, don't, I had a long argument years ago with a guy named Tony Campolo. Anybody ever heard of him, Tony Campolo? And, um, you know, he likes to yell. He's a little Italian guy. He spits on you while he's talking to you and stuff. And he really took issue, you know, with, uh, you know, the idea that as a Christian we could be for protecting our nation with war. And he had this whole thing called, would Jesus drop the bombs? Anybody ever heard of that? Would Jesus drop the bombs? And it's the idea, you know, that Jesus is kind of the bombardier in a plane. And, uh, you know, he's, he's talking to some non-Christian military man. And they're over the, you know, the target. And there are human beings down there. And the question is, would Jesus drop the bombs? And then finally, the military guy says, of course, Jesus wouldn't drop the bombs. And so, Campolo's, you know, conclusion is, there you have it. Even a non-Christian understands Jesus better than most right-wing conservative Christians. Of course, I guess, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah escaped his attention. And the Amorites and the Amalekites and the entire world during the time of Noah and on and on. Because I think Jesus was around when that happened as well. But here's my point. My point is that Tony Campolo was depending upon this man's sentimental image of Jesus that he had in his head that many of us grew up with, which was Jesus the hippie. Jesus in the sandals, Jesus walking around, petting dogs at the Sea of Galilee, telling nice stories and not upsetting anybody. It's an image that our culture has of Jesus. That's something we need to be very careful about because it can be used to skew our understanding of the character and nature of God himself. 
again, and I'm quoting J.I. Packer a lot because I got a lot of this information from a book he wrote called Knowing God, which I think has a valuable explanation of the situation. And Packer addresses this, what I just said, by stating this. At best, they can only think of God in the image of a man, as an ideal man, perhaps, or a superman. But God is not any sort of man. We were made in his image, but we must not think of him as existing in ours. And that's where we go. That's where we go in our thinking. When we have an image of God that is given to us based upon human artists, human sentiment, rather than scriptural revelation. Friends, the second commandment warns us against any worship or religious practice that leads us to dishonor God and falsify his truth. The second commandment should cause us to humble ourselves before God's incomprehensibility. We can't put God in a place where we've got, we've got him circumspect. You know, we can draw a circle around him. We can't do that. We want to do that, but we can't. We shouldn't. It summons us to recognize that God the Creator is transcendent, mysterious, and inscrutable. God is beyond the range of any imaging or philosophical guesswork of which we are capable. We should then humble ourselves, listen and learn of Him, and let Him teach us what He is like and how we should think of Him. We sit at His feet, i.e. the Scriptures, and hear God tell us of Himself. There is a comment. Have you ever heard this one? You can't put God in a box. I think here that comment is appropriate. You can't draw a circle around God. You can't put God in a box. Unfortunately, that phrase is usually used by those who have just learned of an attribute of God that violates their image. You ever, I mean, that's usually when this comes up, when you're going, well, you know what? The Bible says God does this and that and this and that. And then somebody looks at you and they go, you know what? You're trying to put God in a box. Because they don't like what you just said. Well, in a certain sense, you can't put God in a box. And this commandment is that place where we shouldn't put God in a box. We can't get God kind of neatly situated into this place where we can look at him. Both the Apostle Paul and Isaiah had very close encounters with God. And they both recognized God's incomprehensibility. Isaiah 55, 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And the Apostle Paul in Romans eleven thirty three writes, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. When we try to make images of God, we are violating that which the Bible says of God, and that is we can't get him in here. We can't set him down in that chair. Friends, the wisdom, values, aims, and mode of God are so beyond us that we cannot possibly guess our way to them by intuition or any notion of ideal manhood. He tells us about himself through apostles, prophets, and his own son. The second commandment requires that we get our thoughts toward God from his word and not from images. We cannot put God in a box, but he has chosen to reveal himself in a book. God refers to those who neglect his word in this respect, not as image worshipers. You know what he calls them in the commandment? This is why I think it's such a big deal of those who 
hate me. They're God-haters. Those who disregard his commandment as a whole are considered to be those who hate God. The context of the statement, God-hater, is within the framework of image users who prefer the image of God over the true God. They made the image. Naturally, they prefer it. I mean, whenever you have men creating something, and uh, uh, you know, juxtaposed to God, men will always prefer what they have created. Jesus, I think, made that clear when he says, why have you transgressed the commandments of God with your traditions? They had the commandments and they had traditions. Which, which were they choosing? They were choosing their traditions. Why? Because they made them. Man will naturally choose that which he made. And when we have a false image of God up against the true image of God, because the false image is the image we created, we will follow that false image. If not, we would have created a different image and followed it. Image users inevitably get their theology from the God they imagine rather than the revealed will of God in the scriptures. Most of Deuteronomy 4, which leads, by the way, to the record of the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy, reveals the contrast of the God who reveals himself by speaking versus the temptation to make images. If you read the chapter before the law, it's, it's, he's going, look, at God did not come and speak to you the way people, you know, with, you know, through an image or through some type of physical thing. So he leads all the way up to the law by going, look, at you can't trust that method of understanding God. Moses teaches that God expressly forbids the use of images. The images made even by well-meaning men will eventually war with the God of Scripture. Now, I don't know. I, I realize from time to time, you know, I and we in this church and in this pulpit teach things that are kind of counterculture. And I realize this is one of those things. Maybe, maybe for some of you, this is old hat. If you read kind of historical Protestant Christianity, if you read, you know, our catechisms and what have you, this is old business. But in the culture in which we live, I can't tell you how foreign this is to most people. Yet at the same time, just because it's foreign doesn't mean it's wrong. And I would just challenge you to not let the sentiments, the theological sentiments of an apostate culture dictate to you what is true over and above what the scriptures teach. Now, if what I'm saying doesn't make sense, you know what? Test all things. Hold to what is true. But if it's warring against the culture in which you live, and, but you're looking at it and going, yeah, that is not only biblical, it makes all the sense in the world, scripture and sound reason, you need to make that necessary adjustment, what we call repent, repentance. We will often hear orphans and widows, and I've heard this so often, refer to Jesus as their husband or father, After all, God is the father to the fatherless. But friends, we must take care when we worship that we are not imagining God to be the father, husband, wife, friend, or parent that we never had. We will then seek to endow him with the traits we wished they had had. Let me tell you, God is that and more. He is all that and more. But he's not merely that. Finally, last point, visiting iniquity. Sanctions and blessings. A sanction is um, a punishment. Blessing, obviously, is a blessing. The sanctions or punishments that come with this commandment are frightening. They are severe. 
the Lord states, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. There is a generational curse to those who violate this commandment. This commandment is no small thing, and it should not be taken lightly. It affects all of us, and it will affect our children. It should be startling to us that we are the most powerful no, I should, let me rephrase this. It should not be startling to us that we are the most powerful influence in our children's lives. I mean, the Bible teaches that, and lo and behold, modern psychologists have also figured that out. The improper view of God we have will be passed on to our descendants for three and four generations, the Bible teaches. I see qualities in myself, both good and bad, that I saw in my mother and my father. Have you not experienced that? A skewed understanding of God may be the worst thing we can leave our children. That, that may be, if you think of all the things, you know, hey, I believe in leaving, you know, making sure my kids, and I want to leave a legacy to my kids, both physically and spiritually and psychologically, emotionally. I, it's my goal that my children are blessed in such a way that it blesses their kids and their kids and their kids. But uh, there is nothing more important in terms of what I want to bequeath to my children than a proper understanding of who God is. That's just got to be absolutely number one. You lose that and you've lost everything. We are also told of the positive side of keeping the commandment, but showing mercy to thousands, that is thousands of generations, to those who love me and keep my commandments. See, the adherence to this commandment promotes the glory of God and the spiritual well-being of man. We see the mercy of God and how long obedience yields blessings, thousands of generations. Versus how quickly evil can be purged three and four generations. It's so God is so gracious. He's saying, you know what? If you love me and you keep my commandments in this respect, thousands of generations will be blessed. But if not, he's not saying the curse will last for thousands of generations. Missionaries go into darkened lands, bringing the gospel where they have for thousands and thousands of years believed in darkness. And within a generation or two. We see the glory of God in those communities. It's a wonderful thing how powerful the word of God is and how quickly it heals. Have you ever been curious as to why it is proper for God to be jealous? I'm not a big uh, student of Oprah. You know, she's not in my list of commentators and stuff. I don't study what she thinks about verses and stuff. But I do understand that... um, she quit going to church when she heard that God was jealous. Anybody heard that? Has anybody heard that? I, I was reading that, yeah. And I can, in a way, understand that. I can understand. I mean, it just kind of reveals, in a way, how you view your opinion above the opinion of the Scriptures. I mean, when I look at stuff like that, I go, wow, that doesn't seem, it seems counterintuitive. It doesn't seem right. Jealousy seems like such a bad thing, right? The term jealousy is used in conjunction with this commandment because of the the fallacious representation that images portray of God. God is jealous in his zeal to maintain his glory and in his own best interests, in, in his glory and in our best interests. To worship the true God, we should recognize his jealousy as a good thing. For when our view of God is distorted by an image, we are straying from the true God and from what is most glorious to him and in our best interest. Let me, let me explain it this way. If I'm off with my kids, and I'm their father, and I love them, and I see my kids kind of wooed and subdued 
by some other man who's trying to play the role of father in their lives. I can have a healthy jealousy. You know what, kids? I don't know who that man is, but I know this. He doesn't love you the way I do. Uh, He's winning your affection. He's winning your allegiance. That belongs to me. Now, even I, as a sinful person, can understand that my love for them is superior to some stranger's love for them. How much greater should we understand that God is righteously jealous when we start following false images of him, which is a false God that leads to destruction? See, covetousness is sin. Envy is sin. But jealousy may or may not be sin. Let me tell you something. I don't know if this comes up in the marriage seminar. I can't remember. But the idea of jealousy in a marriage. There's a proper time for jealousy. If your spouse spouse starts showing affection for another person that belongs to you and you're not a little bit jealous, there's something wrong there. You should be jealous. Now, I'm not saying you should rage and yell and scream and kick and get in a big fight. But that belongs to you. It doesn't belong to somebody else. And that's what God is saying. I'm the one who loves you. I'm the one who delivered you out of Egypt. I'm the one who delivered you out of bondage. I'm the one who's rescued you. Nobody loves you the way I love you. And so when I see you following false gods, that brings out a jealousy in me because you belong to me. I love you more than whoever that is out there. I hope that makes sense. So in conclusion, are we worshiping, friends, the one true God in truth? We may not have bull calves in our churches or even crucifixes on our walls, though we may have pictures of Christ in churches. How do I know if I'm worshiping the one true God in truth? I look to the person and work of Jesus Christ as revealed in the scriptures. Showing me the final truth about the nature, the character, and the grace of God. Do I see all purposes of God centering around Jesus? Do I find, as I search the scriptures, that I continually have to carve myself and adjust my errant view of God, or do I adjust God to my images of Him? Do my findings lead me to one solution as I battle through this? Because let me tell you, every last single one of us have a false and skewed image of God. Every last single one of us. And where does that lead me? Where does that lead you? It must lead us to Calvary. It must lead us to Christ. This is yet another commandment that we have broken. This is yet another commandment that would condemn us. And so even in my false view of God, even in my skewed and perverted and twisted understanding of things, I know this. I think every child, I pray every child in this church knows this. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. I know that. I know that's true. He's going to deliver me from all of my sin, which includes an improper understanding of God himself. Does, friends, the incomprehensibility and holiness of God bring me to my knees and make me ever aware of my sin and need for a Savior whom God graciously provides in his Son? I hope the answer is yes. How impossible is it to avoid having an image of God that is less than what he is? How clearly we have violated this command in thought, word, and deed, and how obvious it should be 
that we need to take refuge in the Son who fully knows the Father. If this brings us to our knees, then we know that we are worshiping the one true God in truth. And with that, we enjoy life everlasting according to Christ's own definition as he prays for us. And this is eternal life that they may know you, he's praying to his Father, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you that you've been a gracious God revealing to us through your word who you are. We pray, Father, and we do pray for forgiveness of our twisted, abbreviated, perverted, and otherwise, Father, obscure views of who you are. We pray, Father, that you would deliver us from those images that seem to to reside in our minds of who you are. Deliver us from that, we pray, that we might know our Father in truth. We pray, Father, that as we search the Scriptures, that the Scriptures would work as a sword, as a knife, continually carving away those false views. And may those false views, Father, be replaced by the superior, true understanding of the living God. Help us, Father, to know our Father. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.